This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and find a place to sit. My name is Ron. Merry Christmas. What's your name? Oh, that's awesome, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, we are going to have some fun today. We have one of the tough... I can, I can tell you the toughest subject that any pastor ever gets asked. So we're going to jump into that in just a little bit. Uh, but I want to welcome you. It is the Christmas season. That song that we just sang is about Jesus. It actually was written 700 years, not the song, but the verse that it comes from was written 700 years or so before Jesus was born, which is why it says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all descriptors of who Jesus is. And one of the things that I love about the Christmas season is this is the time when we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth. Thank you, Justin. That Jesus came to our earth. And when I think about Jesus, difference maker is what I think. Because when you look at our world, it hangs in a tenuous balance. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And, and, and the world could literally spin out of control. People's behavior could go beyond the point of no return. The, the world could literally be an awful, awful place to live. But the interesting thing is, when Jesus came, I can tell you for sure that whatever side of the scale he hops on, it wins. Got it? Amen. The difference maker of all eternity came to our world to make sure that the, that the end of the story of our earth is a good one. Good. And when the story ends well, it's a good story. So we're going to jump into that this morning. For those of you who are brand new to New Life, uh, I hope I get a chance to meet you. I'm the founding pastor of our church. I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. If you have questions, again, we're going to deal with a very, very difficult subject today. Uh, and so you may have questions. I'll be out there. Please feel free to stop by and ask whatever questions you have. I can't guarantee you that I will have an answer to every question, uh, but I can guarantee you I will tell you what I know uh, to be true and what I don't know, I'll go look up. So, um, And then if you ask me a question only God can answer, I may refer you up, okay? That's how that works, okay? Um, but I want to welcome you. Uh, I want to introduce you to a tool or two that we use every Sunday at New Life. Every Sunday is a learning experience, and every Sunday we learn something about God that we probably didn't know. We learn something about life that we probably didn't know, and we leave uh, better equipped to relate to God and better equipped to live life. And so we don't want anyone left behind in that process. So on the inside of your program, you'll find this card. It says start here on one side, it says connect card on the other side. Uh, the start here side is the place where you start. There's a place for your name and contact information. This card enables you to have direct access to our pastoral staff. Uh, it's not just for new people. We all use it every Sunday. And uh, so this is your opportunity. If you, if you want to ask us to pray about something, if you, want, if you want to volunteer for something we're doing, if you have questions, say, about student ministries or our preschool ministry or any other thing that you notice that we do, 
Uh, this is the place where you just say, hey, would somebody contact me? We will do that. But it all starts if you give us a way to contact you. So put your name. And if you're brand new, put your email, at least your email address on the front. Then we will do our best to follow up with you uh, and to assist you in your journey of faith. Because that's why we're here as a church. The second thing that you'll find inside your program, among other things, is a half sheet of notes. And I'm sorry I didn't bring one up with me, so you'll just have to fish around till you find it. Uh, it's a half sheet of teaching notes. There's some fill-in-the-blanks uh, for you to fill out. Uh, if that helps you learn, I'll give you a couple things that you can write in the margin if, if you're a note-taker, and that helps you learn. But before I jump into the subject... We're going to actually be dealing with the subject, I Believe in God. That's our series, I Believe in God, But. And what follows is actually a tough question. We've looked at, I believe in God, but why would he allow slavery? I I believe in God, but how could one God be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time? And we've looked at a number of of other things. Uh, Today we tackle probably the toughest of all, I believe in God, but how could he... um, have anything to do with genocide. So, I have a word of warning to those of you who have parents and you may have small children in here. Anytime we talk about the subject of genocide, I'm, I'm going to tell a story or two. I will try to make them the best that I can, but I can tell you that there are some graphic parts that in order for us to understand this subject, I'm going to have to tell that part of it. So, if at any point you feel like, wow, I need to take my children in the other room, that's a little more graphic than what I would like. First of all, I apologize for having to do that. But number two, please feel free to do that. No one's going to throw tomatoes at you as you leave, all right? So, and you can go out in the lobby. We have turned down the speaker in the lobby on purpose uh, because we want you to be comfortable. We want you uh, to make sure that your children are comfortable. Having That sounded very much like a movie, right? Where you get all the warnings on the front side, right? Or like a television program, you know, viewer discretion advised, all right? So uh, here we go. I believe in God, but why would he sanction in any way genocide? I want to start off by putting this in a proper context. Um, Sometimes people have this idea that especially in the Old Testament, that quite often God was telling, especially his people, to go in and kill everybody uh, who was of a certain race or a certain culture. Uh, That's actually um, not a fair characterization of what God said. And let's start with the most common one that I've heard as a pastor that people often ask me, why would God tell his people, the nation of Israel, to go in and kill all the inhabitants of, of the land where he was taking them when he took them out of Egypt and into their promised land? Well, God actually didn't tell them to do that. He literally used the word dispossess. In other words, they were to drive them out of that land, not necessarily kill them, but to drive them out of that land. And we're going we're gonna to get into this morning why he would even give that command um, and why he would be just in giving that command. But in order to, to get the context right, the term that is used most often is dispossess or drive out. In a handful of cases, you could count them on less than one hand, God said to go into a particular city or a tiny locale, and God said, I want you to actually kill everyone who lives there, okay? 
And uh, we're going to get into why he would say that. But that was very rare and only on a handful of occasions. Probably the most notable in the Bible is the, is the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, which probably most of you have at least heard of that. And in that case, it was uh, God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven to do that. So that's the subject we're going to jump into. Uh, but I wanted to start by saying God does not sit up in heaven and go, who are we going to wipe out today? That's not who God is, all right? Uh, let's start with three understandings. And the first one is this. God has a very tough job. Okay? I'm going to start a statement and you finish it. Ready? Uh, sometimes I am damned if I do and what? You said damn in church. <laughs> Just want to make sure you were aware of that, all right? Yeah, I know. I did too. Yes. Okay. You ever think about God in the sense that he can never win? Because when something goes on in our world that shouldn't go on in our world, we all go, where is God? Why is he not doing something about that? And then when God shows up and calls an end to that sort of thing, we go, hey, 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 what's God doing here? We love to Monday morning quarterback God. Well, I can tell you this. Um, I've never met anyone that I would be willing to say, you know, I would be fine if they just ran the whole show. Have you ever met anybody you'd be willing to turn the whole world over to? Now, you might have met some people that would like to run the whole world. We've probably all met one or two of those. But I've never met anybody that I would want to turn the whole thing over to because, frankly, that is a no-win situation. Why is it a... Well, here's why it's a no-win situation. Take a look at this verse of Scripture. People's own foolishness ruins their lives, but in their minds, what do they do? It's God's fault. I can't tell you how many times people have come into my office or said to me, and there's just their life is a mess, and they want to blame God. And they have made poor choice after poor choice after poor choice, but somehow it's God's fault. Um, now, why does God allow us to do that? Because in his wonderful design for the world, God decided years ago, long before you and I ever were born, long before even Adam and Eve were created, God decided that in order for life to be meaningful, it had to be more art than science. And here's what I mean by more art than science. If life were science, then God would have designed people to be little miniature human living robots who always did the right thing and who always functioned perfectly and the whole world would be this fantastic human machine that actually that 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 just ran great and if a part malfunctioned if it was science we would do with the world what we do with a piece of machinery when it malfunctions we tear into it we find out the defective part we take that part out we throw it away we get a new part that's going to function properly we put it in there we crank it up and it all works again now that works great on machines the only problem is when that becomes the world the part you threw away was a human being and God says, no, I'm not into that. So God says, it's actually not going to be so much science as life is going to be an art form. 
Now, the interesting thing, if life were more science, then legalism would be all we need. Here's all the list of all the things that you're supposed to do. If you do them well enough, you're in, and if you don't do them well enough, you're out. And by the way, many of us grew up thinking that's how life worked, right? Yeah. And, and that's just straight-up legalism. That's a subject for another day. But if the world were more science, legalism would be how it worked. But because life is an art form, then we live in this context of love, grace, and liberty. And that, my friends, makes life messy. It always does. Love makes life messy, doesn't it? Shake your head like this. Even if you're married. Love makes life messy. Yeah, it does. But it's also what makes life wonderful. But in order for love to work, there, have to be, there has to be grace and liberty as well. I went to... Here's something you need to know about art. It's not that art doesn't have any rules or principles. Art has rules and principles and, and, and guidelines that, that sort of dictate whether it turns out beautiful or not or whether it turns out functional or not. And I've been to Disneyland and I've gone to that. I don't even know what they call it, but where they teach you how to draw Mickey Mouse or, or one of the other Disney. Mine look more like Mickey Moose. There's a problem with that, right? I have zero artistic talent. And they explain the guidelines and the concepts and you make a circle and you make another circle and, and then you got to have this and you got to have that. And I was trying so hard to follow all the principles and guidelines that he was all crooked and tilted and slanted and, and yeah. Yes. Art is messy, especially mine. Yeah. And so there had to be room for grace and liberty. And that's how God designed life. Because he wanted it not to be a machine. He wanted it to be organic people. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. yeah. But that made life a lot tougher for God. And it made God's job a lot tougher. Because life is a dance between two things. And I apologize for how small this is. But this is a little balance scale. And life is a dance or a balance between on one side the sovereignty of God and on the other side the free will of people. There's a little overlap, but I want to read to you out of God's Word what God wants us to know about His sovereignty. He says here in Isaiah chapter 45, and I've excerpted uh, whole sentences out of that entire chapter. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. First thing you learn about God is it's not multiple choice. It's not pick your own God today. There's only one, okay? I am the Lord and there is no other. I create light and make the darkness. I send good times and the bad. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. Let the earth open wide so salvation and righteousness can spring up together. If you would, on your notes, circle salvation and righteousness and draw a line between them because as you read through the entirety of the Bible, you will find out that those two concepts are inseparably tied together. 
salvation, and righteousness. That doesn't mean, by the way, that if you live righteously enough, you will be saved. It actually flows the exact opposite direction from that. It means that if you turn to God for salvation, He begins to cause righteousness to spring up in your life. And He begins to transform you. They spring up together. He goes on to say, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? By the way, that's not a challenge. God doesn't puff up his chest and say, you want to give me some orders? Yeah, bring it on. That's not what that's about. If you've ever had children, then and they were old enough to talk, you had this talk. You're actually wanting your child to do something, and they really don't want to do it. And so they start to argue with you and give you the list of reasons why they shouldn't be required to do that. Have you had that conversation? Yep. And even if you've never had it, you had it on the other side when you were a kid. Right? Why were you having that conversation? Was it because you just want to manipulate your kid? No, because you knew that what you were wanting them to do was actually good for them. And you've had that conversation on the flip side too, where you were trying to get your child not to do something that they really wanted to do. And they argued with you, and maybe they even got defiant, and they went straight out and they did the very thing that you were trying to convince them not to do. And you know, how did it turn out for them, likely? Not good. God, who is our Heavenly Father, says to us, Oh, don't argue with me. And if you do, <laughs> it's, just, it's not going to go well. I'm so sorry. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their Creator? That story will never have a happy ending. Do you actually think you could instruct God about the work of His hands? You actually think you got a better grip on this than He does? Then he goes on to say, look, let I am the one who made the earth and created people to live in it. Let all the world look to me for what? Salvation. Not judgment. Not manipulation. God doesn't sit in heaven and say, who can I judge today? Who can I land on today? No, let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God and there is no other. And you know, when people look to God for salvation, look what they end up saying. The people will declare the Lord is the source of all of my what? Righteousness and strength. Would you circle righteousness and strength and put a line between them? Because I want to tell you from start to finish in the Bible, those three concepts are always and inseparably tied. Salvation, righteousness, and strength. This is basic stuff about life. Now let me read to you about the free will that you and I have. Because God's very upfront about that too. And here's what God says to his people back in Deuteronomy, and it's still true today. He says, today I have given you the choice between life and death. Between blessings and cursings. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose what? Life. Life. So that you and your descendants might live. 
You could make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firm to, firmly to Him. I want you to read the last sentence out loud with me. Ready? Let's read it together. This is the key to your life. That's what God wants us to know. That's why we shouldn't argue with Him, because not because He's going to make sure that we're under some sort of a curse. It's because He's sparing us what He knows is at the end of that road. And he's saying to us as our father, don't go down that road. So life is this dance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of people. What happens when you and I take the free will God has given us and we start to abuse it and we start to do things with it that become massively destructive? Does God sit back and not do anything? No, he's a parent. Did you know all parents have this thing on the inside of them? They have a calculator that continually runs, an evaluator that continually runs. And when their children start to do something that their child shouldn't do, there's this thing in there. They don't just immediately jump into action. Oftentimes they sort of let it run and see if the child will self-correct and get it on the right course and so forth. And they're always grateful when the child does and all that stuff. But there's a calculator that's going in there and eventually something clicks in there and the parent goes, now I have to intervene. And the parent will step in and take action. You go, no, I don't. I let my kids, I mean, I don't want to warp or twist my kids. So I don't know. That's not true. I mean, yes, it might be true most of the time, but I've never met a parent who was having a conversation with a friend on the sidewalk and their kid came running through, ready to run out in the street, and they didn't reach out and even in the moment maybe grab that child in a way that actually hurt the child. Might even skin their knee if the child falls down, if they were running fast enough. Might even leave a bruise on their arm. Because what kind of a parent would stand back and go, well, I told them. (laughs) Guess they're going to have to learn that in the hard way. Only the worst parent in the world. Well, God is our Father. And yes, He will let our behavior stray a certain distance. But He has a calculator that runs. And at some point, he's going to step in and say, now I have to intervene because I can't let people take their free will and take the whole world down. I'm into building people. I'm into building communities of people. And I can't let a handful of people destroy the whole thing. Okay? So like a good parent, he steps in and intervenes. So what is it that causes God to do that? And when does he do it? Well, in order to understand that, I brought a board up here with me. Do you like this board? You see something wrong with it. It is absolutely, yes. I went to Orchard Supply and I found the most crooked board I could find. And I'm quite sure they were glad to sell it to me. And they probably said a prayer for me as I walked out the door. I don't know what that guy's going to build with that, but I feel sorry for him. Right? Okay. Because if I was going to build something and I ordered a couple of, of, of pallets of lumber and they delivered a couple of pallets of lumber and they looked like this and they delivered that to my house, 
I would reject it. And I want you to write these words down because it's something that every builder knows. When you start with defective building materials, you cannot build anything that's lasting. You cannot build anything that's safe. And you cannot build anything that's beautiful. And I want you to know that God is into building lasting, safe, and beautiful people and communities. But there are certain things, certain choices that we can make that actually warp and twist our human nature. And when we make those to a certain degree, God says, I cannot now in that community, I can't build any people who are lasting, safe, or beautiful. And so now I have to intervene. And so we're going to take a look at at what those things are. And in order to understand how that works, we have to know what are the basic building blocks of human culture. And there are three basic building blocks of of human culture, and I'm going to write them up here, and and then we're going to work our way through this. So the first building block of, of human culture is a little thing we call life. And in my notes, I wrote down, neither people nor communities do well without life. Got it? That should take no explanation. Life is required for viability. For anything that's lasting and safe and beautiful, we start with life. It is that basic building block. The second basic building block is family. There have been a few cultures who have literally tried to mess with the structure of family. Um, There have been a few cultures throughout history who have taken children from the home when the children were first weaned and put them in institutions where they were raised by supposedly child experts and the father and the mother were sent to work and earn money for that culture. Uh, None of those cultures was able to survive because as virtually every um, sociologist knows, Family is the basic building block of all culture. It's the place of personal development, and it's the basic building block of all culture. Okay? Third is faith. And faith is, <clears throat> is the context in which we most readily learn that life isn't just about us, it's actually about others. All of us were born with a basic with a basic default setting of life is about me. It's why when you're first born, you can do basically four things. You can suck, you can cry, you can pee, and you can poop. And they're all about you. Right? Yeah. And you have to be taught that the whole world doesn't revolve around you. Faith is this context in which we learn that life is actually about a relationship with God and it's actually about loving our brothers and our sisters and having an other's view of life. And when these three building blocks are in place, and by the way, you can write a single word after each one of them, and if you're taking notes, I want to suggest that you do. After life, I want you to write the word sacred. Because life is sacred. I could take you through the scripture and I could show you that God says life, all life actually belongs to him. It's on loan to us. Okay? It is sacred. I could also take you through scripture and show you that family is sacred. Okay? 
It's not to be trivialized. It's not to be messed with. It's not to be, hey, let's try this. Let's see if we can tweak this. Let's break this off and add this on. No, family is sacred. It was set up by God because it is the basic building block through which God develops people and builds communities. So you can write sacred after that. And of course, after faith, you could write the word sacred because faith is sacred. Now, what you and I need to know is that there's an arch enemy of these, each one. And this is where um, the understanding begins to take place, okay? The, the enemy of life is violence. Because violence is a disrespect of life. Not just murder, violence. Torture is a disrespect of life. Abuse is a disrespect of life. Intentionally hurting or stabbing someone, even if you don't kill them, that, that's, that's a disrespect of life itself. And in fact, any time we treat life as expendable or manipulatable, we are doing violence to life. Violence is the arch enemy of life. The arch enemy of family is immorality. Nothing will break up a family quicker than immorality. And by the way, I know, and this is a subject for another time, I'm just going to mention it now. God says that sex is for a husband and a wife in the context of family. Anytime we have sex outside of that context, we are actually disrespecting family. you got to know that. Here's how we're disrespecting family. God designed sex to be the most intimate bond that would draw a husband and wife together for life. The most personal and intimate expression of love on the face of planet earth. And when you take something that was designed to be inside the family and you trivialize it by spreading it wherever you want to go, you disrespect family. It got really quiet in here. Did you notice that? Okay, it's true. I say that to you in love. Okay, because in my office, I get the flip side of this. I get the people who have come in with this. I love them. Okay, and I already said, life is about love and grace and liberty, right? But I also said it's what? Messy. Okay, and the arch enemy of family is immorality. Okay, now, what is it that would ever trigger in God where God would say, that's gone far enough, I have to intervene, because now it's past the point of no return. This is where it gets a little graphic, and I apologize for this. I apologize that I have to tell you this story, but I'm going to lay it out straight, okay? In the handful of cases where God said, okay, I have to step in, and I either have to completely dispossess these people and scatter them into other cultures where hopefully they will learn not to live violent and immorally to the degree that they are. In those handful of cases, here's what had happened. 
By the way, not that Hollywood is listening this morning, but there's a whole portion of Hollywood that the movies feature what? Sex and... Ah, there's a message in here for all of us, okay? And it's actually a very good message, all right? Now, when God said, in this land that I'm taking you to, I want you to dispossess the people, it's because the people had done this. They had taken violence and immorality to a level that you and I could not imagine, okay? Um, In the book of Judges, there's a story of a guy who was traveling with his wife, and he stopped in a certain town uh, just to spend the night and went to a guest house, and the men of that town all gathered around the guest house and began pounding on the door and saying to the guy, come out, we want to have sex with you. Now, that would be tough. I mean, that's tough anywhere, right? Can you imagine a place so immoral that that they would literally, as soon as any new person came to town, they would go beat on the door till that person came out and had sex with them? That's bad. But that's actually the best part of the story. Okay? It gets worse. The guy thinks, oh, that does not sound like fun. Why would I do that when I have a perfectly good wife with me? So I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to open the door and I'm going to send my wife out there and they can have sex with her. Did I happen to mention that women had few rights back in those days? Kevin talked about that last week. And so the guy does. And he puts his wife out there and they abuse and mistreat her all night long. And in the morning the guy gets up, wakes up, can you imagine that? He went to sleep. He woke up the next morning and said, well, I better go see how my lady's doing. Walks out of the door, and she's dead on the front steps. That's bad. By the way, that's immorality and violence. Got it? He's not done yet. Now he's mad. Look what they did to my wife. I want to say, what did you think was going to happen? He takes his wife, he takes her body, and he chops her into pieces. And then he sends out his friends to each portion of the country and says, this is what we're going to do to your wife if you don't join with us and come down and kill all these people. I'm sorry, that's, that's awful. But there are actually numerous stories. That's how the people of this culture lived. It's, it's an immorality you and I can't imagine. It's a violence that you and I could... Uh, that turns my stomach, that we can hardly stand. But friends, they got worse. You know what they did? They said, hey, look at this. They took their violence and their immorality and they brought them into their faith. So they said, how about if we took human beings and sacrificed them at our temple. And we're not going to use lethal injection. We're going to kill them. We're going to cut out their heart. We're going to cut out their liver. And we're going to dismantle them. And we're going to make it part of our religion. And how about if we turned our temple into a brothel 
with male and female prostitutes and, and made the way you worship our God is you come and you have sex at the temple with a prostitute. And then, oh, yeah, these people get pregnant and now we have babies that nobody wants. Oh, I know what we can do. How about if we burn the babies in a ritual sacrifice to our pagan God? And at that point, God says, I'm done. Got it? I got to call an end to that. Because people have taken their free will, and now they've turned it into a monster. And so God stepped in, and he intervened. Now, here's what I want us to get out of this. Okay? Uh, Number one... I want us to see why God is just in doing what he's doing. But that's not really the whole point of the message today. Here's the real point of the message. If there was a message that God would give every one of us, it's this. Life, family, and faith. Those, my friends, are the building blocks that end up making people lasting, safe, and beautiful. Those are the things that make a community lasting, safe, and beautiful. Those are the things that make a country lasting, safe, and beautiful. And what God would want us to do today is to commit ourselves to the sacredness of life and begin to value it and prize it above anything else that we could own. He would want us to look at family and to value it and prize it above anything that we could own, more than our job, more than the car we drive, more than the hobby we have, more than any other thing, that we would value the sacredness of our family and that we would value the sacredness of our, of our faith and that nothing would stand between us and, and our personal relationship with God. That makes sense to everybody? That's the real message, okay, that God wants us to get on this day. So I believe in God, but why would he sanction genocide only to keep us from spinning totally out of control and to call us back to the basic values of life, family, and faith? There are two ways we can apply this. For everyone in this room, I would like to call us to rededicate ourselves to those three values. And during this Christmas season, to take a little time and say, how am I doing at valuing life itself? How am I doing at taking my family and putting my family where it needs to be and valuing other people's family? And how am I doing at valuing my faith, so we could rededicate ourselves to life, family, and faith. And then last of all, I I said a while ago, I read a passage where God says, let the whole world look to me for salvation. Friend, you don't get salvation by just coming to church uh, X number of times. Salvation is something you get from God when you personally ask for it and turn to Him for it. And when you do, He makes spring up in your life things like righteousness and strength 
and peace and all the other things that come with that. And you can begin that journey today. You can, you can turn to him for salvation by first of all telling him that you are. And so I'm going to give you a short prayer that you can pray that's the beginning of that journey. And if you're ready to make that prayer this morning, uh, on, on the back of your uh, Start Here card, there's a place where it says, I'm making a first-time decision to follow Christ. I want you to check that because we want to get some resources in your hands that will help you on that journey, and we'd like to get them to you this week so you can get started right. In any case, as we, as we bow our heads, here's the prayer that you pray. You can say it quietly where you are, or you can even say it in your heart to God, but you've got to mean it. Okay, ready? Let's pray. Here it is. Lord Jesus, I turn to you right now for salvation. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, and I trust that you will do that. And I ask you this day, to give me a better understanding and the ability to value life and family and faith. Today I begin that journey with you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.